when and how did you two meet? <laughs> uh, we met online, basically, through uh, one of these dating sites. And uh, we've been together ever since. That's Moshe Leinberg. He's 59, lives in Jerusalem, and he's talking about his wife, Gabriella. She's also 59. We got married about, I don't know, about a year and a half after we met. Gabriella is a social psychologist who works with autistic adults. The people she works with are, are both uh, Jewish and Arab Israelis. I've heard her referred to as like a second mother to some of them. She greets them very affectionately with, with uh, big hugs, and, and uh, they feel a lot of love, and they spe- she makes them feel special. She's also that way with their actual daughter, Mia. She's 17. Mia is like top priority. She's, as an only child, she's very important to us. Mia goes to a high school for the performing arts, where she's a singer. She likes the modern stuff, the rock. Uh, they have concerts for the music department uh, twice a year. And quite often it's very crowded, but I'd like to go because I love, love to hear her sing. Can you tell me more about Mia? One of the things I have to say is uh, about her is that she's very proud of her hair. She has long, uh, curly hair, frizzy hair, and she loves her hair, and sometimes they kid around with her, and I say, if you don't behave, I'm going to take you to the barber, and we're going to shave your head. Now, and she knows that I'm kidding. Of course, I would never do something like that to her. But because I know how sensitive she is about this, and I'm worried that uh, they, her, her captors might decide to shave their heads, I went to my barber, and I shaved my head in solidarity so that when they come back, and I have to believe that it's a when, then I can tell her, look, you know, we're all in this together, we'll regrow our hair together. Mia, her mother Gabriella, and three members of their extended family were all taken hostage by Hamas on October 7th. They're among the more than 200 people being held captive in Gaza, according to the Israeli government. Moshe has now spent more than two weeks without his family. You know, when people talk to me and they ask me questions, and and you can see it on their faces that they're thinking, my God, this could have been me or my family. It could literally happen to anybody. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Thursday, October 26. Today, we look at the hostage crisis in a war that has left more than 1,400 dead in Israel and more than 7,000 dead in Gaza, according to their respective governments. First, we'll hear more from Moshe Leinberg as he awaits news about his family. Then, in the second half of the show, I speak with the Post-Jerusalem bureau chief, Steve Hendricks, about efforts to get the hostages back home and what this could mean for Israel's potential ground invasion of Gaza.
Moshe is calling me from Tel Aviv and is starting to tell me about the events that led up to his family's abduction when an air raid siren starts blaring. A rocket is headed his way. Gotta go. Sorry, we have a red uh, alarm. We come back uh, immediately. Okay, please stay safe. Moshe and the other people he's with quickly hurry out. After a few minutes, Moshe comes back into the room. And we're back. <laughs> Moshe, can you hear me? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you hear me? Yes, I can. And now everything's okay for the moment, or? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I see people walking around outside in the streets, business as usual. That's, that's the reality here. We, uh, we get these attacks periodically. They've gotten more accurate lately, so they're less afraid. So I'm wondering if, if we could just start with what led up to that day on October 6th, the day before the attack. Can you tell us where you were and where was your family? Well, um, October 6th was uh, the, the birthday of my wife's niece's daughter. She was celebrating her second birthday, and they organized this in uh, Be'er Sheva, which is also in the southern part of Israel. And the plan was to go down to celebrate the granddaughter's birthday. I, I couldn't go because I was down with the flu, which I'm still recovering from. Uh, and because of that, they took the family dog with them as well because I just didn't have the energy to take her out for walks. And so the, the, the three of them, along with my brother-in-law and sister-in-law and my sister-in-law's uh, life partner, went to Kibbutz near Yitzchak, which is where my sister-in-law lives. They participated in the event. It was in a nice little garden outside. And then they went to the kibbutz because my wife didn't want to drive back and forth from and to Jerusalem uh, in, in the same day because it's a two-hour drive each direction. That evening, d- did you happen to speak to Gabriella or, or Mia? Probably some. I, I actually don't really remember, but I'm, I'm sure that I spoke to them that evening. Uh, you know, we usually say goodnight when they go and I stay. I get an update on the state of the dog, mm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, that wasn't you know, the significant thing. The significant thing was the next morning, around 8.30 on the 7th, and I got woken up by sirens, the red alert. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I can't say used to the sirens, but I've gone through the Yom Kippur War here and uh, the Gulf War and uh, a lot of other events. So it's not an unheard of occurrence. So I went into the living room and I turned on, this was 8.30 in the morning uh, on the 7th. I turned on the TV to see what was going on and I find out that this is an event that's been ongoing since uh, 6.30 in the morning. Wow. And uh, before I could call my wife, she called me to find out how I was doing because they heard that they had fired missiles over to, uh, rockets over to Jerusalem. And I said, you know, business as usual. And I said, how about you? And she goes, yeah, here too. And then at some point I spoke to my daughter. She called me, I think, separately. She said that the dog was very upset. 
and uh, she's trying to calm her down. And and at some point, my uh, my daughter sent me uh, a WhatsApp message, and she said uh, that the dog was sleeping. She had calmed down. She sent me a picture of the dog. It's around 10:30, and uh, that was it. All of them were last seen from 11:05 to about 11:14. There was no more contact from from them. I tried calling multiple times, and it went straight to voicemail, and again and again and again. Uh, I heard on the on the TV that they were having communication issues. I suggested trying through WhatsApp, and I tried sending them WhatsApp messages, and there was nothing. Um, I started to become apprehensive. I tried to keep myself busy. It was not an easy thing to do. And uh, I was I was talking to a friend of mine, and he was trying to convince me. He said, "Look, you know, no news is good news." And um, and I was thinking of all kinds of different scenarios. Maybe they all got into my wife's car, which is the largest one there, and and took off. And then at around 5:30 in the uh, early evening hours, I get a phone call from uh, my wife's niece, and she said that uh, someone from the security forces, Israeli security forces, went to check my sister-in-law's house, and that uh, it was broken into, and that they were not there. That strongly suggested that they had been taken. At what point for you did did you realize? what had happened and the scale of what's happened. When my my wife's uh, niece called, it hit me square in the face, let's say. I had this feeling, this overwhelming feeling of dread. And as far as the scale goes, I'm still having great difficulties grasping it. Yeah, of course. And later on, I heard from uh, the, the, the two pieces of information that were concrete that I got here from the authorities was one... Uh, uh, there was no indication that they were in any of the Israeli hospitals. And two, um, that their phones were tracked to Gaza at around uh, 11.45. And was that from the authorities, the, the latest indication you, you've received about their whereabouts? It's more or less the only indication I received. I mean, I think anyone listening to this, you know, to put themselves in your position is just, you know, such an unimaginable thing to encounter. I'm wondering in this moment, what is your day-to-day like? My my younger brother uh, came up with what I think is a very good analogy to the situation. Uh, there, there was a... a Bill Murray movie that came out many years ago called Groundhog Day where he wakes up every morning and he's back in the same day as the day before. He's like stuck in one day. And this is what it feels like. I wake up every morning. um, For a split second, I expect to hear the usual morning sounds, my wife getting ready for work, uh, the dog jumping up on the bed and and licking my face, my my, uh, daughter arguing with my wife about taking the dog out, and, it, and it's not there. There's a, a silence in the house. 
And that's when it dawns on me what my reality is now. Is there anything that you want the rest of us, the world, to know right now? My wife and my daughter and my wife's siblings, these are very kind and giving people and, and they contribute to everyone around them. They're precious. And these are people, these are human beings. These, they're not statistics, they're not numbers, they're not anybody's enemy. They do good. These are the types of people that you want to have in, in any society. And this whole thing is so random and, and senseless. And I think people need to understand. They need to understand that we're talking about actual living, breathing human beings here. And I think that, that you know, they need to understand the importance of getting them home. Moshe, I, I really did enjoy hearing more about, about your family. Um, and, you know, I'll be thinking about them and thinking about you. And we're all hoping for the best here. Thank you so much. That's, that means a lot to me. That's where I draw my strength these days from the support of the people around me, uh, the prayers, all very important. Thank you all. After the break, Jerusalem Bureau Chief Steve Hendricks explains the difficult decisions about hostages that Israel now faces ahead of a potential ground invasion. We'll be right back. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. So, Steve, I want to talk to you about hostages, and I'm wondering if you can give us some context here. Has hostage-taking been a feature of this conflict between Hamas and Israel in the past, and what makes this current situation different? Yeah, it's been a defining feature of, of the conflict. Um, Hamas has put a priority on taking Israeli hostages, and they've actually used them to great effect. The most notable is when they were able to capture an Israeli soldier, Gilad Shalit, in 2011. And they held him for many months, more than a year, and managed to broker a deal in which Israel traded more than a 1,000 Palestinian prisoners. And that was considered to be an acceptable deal in, in Israel at that time. There's been other examples as well, but nothing quite so spectacular. There's never been anything like more than 200 hostages taken at once, including civilians and elderly and, and children. You know, I know this is still an evolving situation, but at this stage, what do we know about Hamas's strategy in kidnapping so many people and taking hostages at once and taking them to Gaza? Like, what is their calculus here? Well, clearly so much is still unknown, but 
obviously, from the documents that were taken from killed Hamas uh, fighters or captured Hamas fighters, we know that captive taking was part of the plan. We don't know if they thought they would end up with this quantity of humans that they have to take care of and conceal and uh, bargain for. There's some indication that that more than just the trained Hamas fighters came out of the breaches in the fence, and that may explain why so many were taken, but it really doesn't make much difference. They're all in the hands of, of Hamas now, and that's where all the attention's being focused on both negotiations and you know rescue, frankly. So on the one hand, there are indications that maybe they didn't expect to kidnap this many people and have this number of hostages. But on the other hand, there are indications that they were always planning for hostage taking and the idea being you take hostages to extract concessions. Is that a basic read of the situation? Yeah, that's that's their fundamental strategy. And even now we hear reports that, you know, they are through intermediaries, you know, suggesting that maybe a, a, a mass prisoner release in exchange for women and children is possibly on the table. I, I don't know that for sure, but we are seeing reports and we're hearing rumors. Historically, that's been uh, their ask. They want to have uh, Palestinians, particularly Hamas, um, but you know there are multiple factions in the Palestinian uh, militant movement. They want Palestinians released in exchange for the hostages they have taken in the past, and it has been a successful strategy. And some... Israeli commentators have said it might not be a bad idea. It might head off some of the bloodshed we anticipate. And usually that's couched around at least the elderly, the ill, the women, and the children in exchange possibly for the elderly and the ill Palestinian prisoners held by Israel. You know, earlier this week, Hamas did release some hostages. First, a mother and daughter from Illinois, then two elderly Israeli women. One of those women, 85-year-old Yocheved Lifshitz, spoke to reporters right after her release. Okay, my mom is telling the horrific stories. What were some of the details that she was able to, you know, give about what this experience was like and how the captives are being treated. My mom is saying that she was taken on the back of a motorbike with her body, uh, with her legs on one side and her head on another side, that she was taken through the plowed fields until they reached the tunnels. Well, she described this spider web of, of tunnels, um, you know, the existence of which is not news to Israel, but she described walking for, you know, kilometers to get to the uh, large chamber and then was held in a, a place where she got medical treatment. My mom is saying that they, they were very friendly towards them and that they took care of them. They were given medicine. And she described an organization that was prepared, organized, and equipped to take care of her and, and many others. I would say the largest message that she provides is they're a very competent organization, if that was in any doubt after October 7th. Was it surprising that she spoke so soon? Oh, very much so. In the midst of the, the joy that I th- I'm sure everyone felt at 
at their release, it became a little bit controversial in Israel because she not only described, you know, the truly horrific treatment that she experienced uh, on October 7th, she also was expressed some, I don't want to say sympathy, but um, uh, humanity with with her captors. She actually came in for a fair amount of criticism in Israel for not being hard enough on Hamas. And we began hearing pretty quickly from Israeli officials who really wanted to push back on the idea that this was a, a great humanitarian uh, gesture by Hamas. And of course, you know, her husband is is still in captivity. So it's really difficult to imagine the swirl of emotions that she might be experiencing. I'm also wondering about how, with the hostages, the ones that have been released, how they got released, and what are the main challenges to getting the other hostages back? Well, we don't know a lot of specifics of the negotiations that led to the two uh, pairs of hostages coming out. We know Qatar, uh, the typical central you know, sponsor, and I don't want to say ally, but a pipeline for aid and, and support for Hamas over many years, played a, a key role, certainly in the release of the Americans. And we know those efforts are ongoing. We know that every country that has citizens represented in this group of 200 are, are actively trying to negotiate the release of their nationals. That's the United States and France and Germany and, and Russia and others. We don't know how coordinated those efforts are or how advanced they are. There's, there's a lot of rumors that a bargain for all the multinational, all the dual citizens, some 50s or, or more citizens might be in the works, but at this point, they're just rumors. I'm sure there is a huge element of this that cannot be discussed publicly because of the nature of negotiations. However, I am curious what Israel is trying to do to free hostages, because from the rhetoric, at least, that I've heard coming from the Israeli government, it seems like the top priority for the government is eradicating Hamas, not freeing hostages. Is that an accurate read on the situation? And if so, why is that? Yeah, I think that's completely accurate. There's no question that the mood in Israel, both in the populace and in the government, is the need for a massive fatal response to the attacks on October 7th. Now, of course, Israel has been bombing Gaza pretty much nonstop since then. But what is really sort of being called for throughout the country is the massive ground invasion it would take to completely eliminate Hamas as a military entity. That's that's Israel's stated goal, to destroy, quote-unquote, Hamas. And that is probably not achievable without a significant ground operation that would almost certainly last many months and represent the most difficult and dangerous kind of urban warfare. And yet there is the question of what happens to these captives. It's a very tricky calculation that the Israeli government has to undergo. It it seems that they believe the country is behind a massive military operation, even at the cost of fatalities among the hostages. I know from reporting and conversations that 
it's a very high priority of the military to include rescues in that operation, and they're gathering all the intelligence they can. But I think they're under no illusions that the kind of uh, invasion that's, that they're probably required to effect is not going to leave 220 survivors. And we know from some reporting that the United States has asked Israel possibly to pause the ground invasion while these negotiations continue. So, you know, there's a big national conversation going on about whether that's worth it. I mean, the the focus of the families, and they are increasingly organized, is to pressure Israel and other governments to just get the hostages out, whatever that takes. And yet within that community, there are ones who sort of openly and publicly recognize we have to go in. We have to destroy Hamas in an attempt to rescue our loved ones, uh, but mostly destroy Hamas. And do we know whether Hamas expected a massive response, a forceful response from Israel in launching this attack and taking so many hostages? Oh, I think absolutely. I mean, there's no question that Hamas had to know that the taking of one hostage has created huge responses from Israel in the past. The killing of civilians, the taking of any hostages is pretty much guaranteed to spark a maximalist response from the Israeli military. You know, I I can just speak to my own reaction when I heard that Hamas fighters had entered Israel. That enough told me we are in for a colossal military engagement. So you have to assume that Hamas knew that was the response and that was, in fact, their intention. Yes, Steve, I know you've been reporting on how Israeli society is responding to this crisis, and it was really divided before this attack. How do Israelis feel right now about their government's handling of this crisis? There's tremendous anger in Israel at the government. Um, they, they are largely held responsible for the failures to protect and, and to anticipate the attacks on October 7th. They're held responsible for the relatively slow response that allowed those attacks to carry on for um, three days in, in some specific cases. And at a more um, political level, there's a lot of second-guessing of the policies that allowed Hamas to flourish. I mean, this has basically been a strategy of Benjamin Netanyahu's for many, many years to encourage and in some ways support or allow this group to exist and dominate in Gaza at the expense of the other major Palestinian faction, the Palestinian Authority, dominated by the Fatah party in the West Bank. And what happened on October 7th was a shocking reminder that uh, the power of this group could be fatal and and uh, devastating. But there's really no question that the appetite for wholesale release of, of prisoners is not what it was here. You know, there are advocates for some kind of bargain like that. But I would say the prevailing public mood is we're not in a bargaining mood. Yeah, and Steve, you know, that just leaves me wondering about the families who have, you know, members of their family taken hostage. And 
it sounds like from what you're saying, this is an ongoing conversation within Israel about that calculation. But I, I just can't imagine how, you know, for for people to think about this in a hypothetical, how differently it feels when it's your family member who's being held captive. I agree. I mean, it's it's the worst situation, and I think it creates um, a lot of conflicting emotions. There's no doubt that overwhelmingly every every family member of a hostage wants that hostage to, to come home safely, and that is absolutely the priority of the individuals and the group uh, of hostage families that, that we've all talked to. But they they recognize that this is an unprecedented crisis. It, it's very difficult to overstate the sense of, you know, very profound threat that this country feels right now. It's a familiar feeling to a lot of people here, some of whom are still alive from the Holocaust. That, in their view, is the reason for Israel's existence, to be a haven for a people that is frequently, um, you know, hunted to extermination in other places. That really complicates the very understandable panic of a family worried about their hostage family member, and it probably, in the long run, swamps it, unfortunately, as far as the country is concerned. In my view, all the signs are that Israel is ready to go, even if they have to endure the death of some of those people. Well, Steve, thank you so much for taking time to to speak with me today. My pleasure. Thank you. Steve Hendricks is the Jerusalem Bureau Chief for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Peter Bresnan. It was edited by Robin Amer and mixed by Sam Baer. Our conversation with Moshe Leinberg was recorded by Idan Koka. If you want to show your support for our show, please subscribe to The Washington Post. It's a great way to back the work we do. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.